You're listening to Gospel-Centered Rest, a podcast by Grace Bible Church in Cambridge, Ontario, dealing with topics of life and theology, and how Christ's promise of rest for the weary and heavy-laden gives us strength for today and hope for tomorrow. Welcome to this week's edition of Gospel-Centered Rest. My name is Byron. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Grace Bible Church, and I'm here with Tyler Oldreeve, who was on deck this Sunday, preaching on John chapter 11, one of the signs of Jesus. Welcome, Tyler. Well, welcome, Byron. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. It is good to be together. Now, I'm wondering, some people weren't able to join us on Sunday. Could I ask you to give us a quick summary of the passage, John 11? It's obviously one of the signs, one of the biggest signs that Mm -hmm. Jesus did. Mm -hmm. And your message, focusing in on the significance of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So it is a a long passage. Um, It's 50... I think it's 57 verses in total, and it covers a lot of ground, and there's a lot going on in this passage. So let me just, uh, like you like you had mentioned, let me just run through the passage quickly, and then I'll, I'll make a few comments about some things that, that really stand out in this passage. So at the beginning of the passage, we have Jesus, who's likely about four days' journey away from where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are. And uh, Jesus is there with his disciples, and a messenger comes and tells them that Lazarus is sick, that he's basically on his deathbed. And then we have Christ's response in these opening verses, and his response is to wait two more days and then leave. And there's, this interaction takes place between him and his disciples um, at this time, because his disciples are afraid of going back to Judea, because the last time they were there... People were seeking to, to stone and to kill Jesus. And so they kind of just saw this as like a death wish. If we go back there, well, we're probably going uh, to die. And we see Thomas's uh, interesting response uh, to this conversation in verse 16 uh, when he says, let's, let's go too so that we may die with him. So then from there, Jesus does arrive where, where Lazarus is uh, laying in the tomb. And, um, and he is in Bethany near Jerusalem, is what the text tells us. And at this point, Martha comes to him and they have this interaction. And this is where you, you have the really famous, the I am statement here. The, uh, the statement that Jesus makes in verse 25, that I am the resurrection and the life, the one who believes in me even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then this wonderful, and I didn't really talk about this too much on Sunday, just didn't have time, but you get this like wonderful response from Martha. Uh, she says, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. So what a statement that she's making here. Uh, and then we, we, we move on to the, to the portion where... Jesus then talks to Mary. So she has, he has a very similar interaction with Mary. And at this point, it's, it's the famous verse that Jesus wept. Uh, the shortest verse, from what I understand, in the, uh, in the English uh, Bible. He, he takes the time to weep with them and to grieve with them. And then from there, he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then what happens is that there's some people that believe in in Jesus because of what they've seen. Uh, but then there's others that go to the Pharisees and go to the religious leaders 
And then you've got this, this final plot to kill Jesus where the religious leaders, and Caiaphas in particular, the high priest, uh, determined that they're going to kill Jesus and this is how they're going to do it. So that's kind of a, a brief overview of the, uh, of, of the whole passage. And what we focused on on Sunday was the purpose of why Jesus revealed himself. He revealed himself to give a bigger, broader, more eternal perspective on life and on things and to reveal the glory of God, reveal the glory of who he was as the Messiah, as the one who is the resurrection, who is the life. But what we see is we see some very interesting um, and encouraging characteristics of Christ's nature throughout this passage of how he interacts with his disciples, how he interacts with Mary and Martha, how he raises Lazarus from the dead. All of this was to point to the glory of the Father and to reveal himself as the, as the resurrection-granting Messiah, as the one who would bring people from death to life and spiritual darkness to spiritual light. So this whole passage just becomes this, this pivotal point in Christ's ministry and in what he's come to accomplish to do. So we focused mainly on those things on Sunday. Okay. Yeah. No, I know it was interesting. One of the things that, as you just pointed it out, mm-hmm. the difference is in the responses. Some who believe and mm-hmm. some who go. And it was almost like a repetition of what happened with the man who got healed at the pool. Yeah. And it's almost the same words, you know, and they went to the Pharisees mm-hmm. and they told them <laughs> yeah. what Jesus had done. And yeah. you think yeah. just that totally different response. And, and you almost wonder if the man who got healed by the pool was there, you know? Uh, I Here, mean, I, we, I know where to go. We, yeah. have, we, we have no evidence of it, but, um, but, but yeah, very similar response. Very similar response. He, he went to the Pharisees, kind of told on Jesus, um, which, then, which then, you know, started what happened there in that situation. And then here, same thing, right? And, um, and that's why we get the end of this passage. Um, and what unfolds here. Well, why don't we look at the end of the passage? Sure. Um, it's entitled, in some versions, The Plot to Kill Jesus, and mm-hmm. it's certainly pretty dramatic that they're really ticked, obviously, and it talks about them deliberately getting together. And mm-hmm. there's this, again, sort of almost an ironic statement where mm-hmm. they say in verse 47, here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this everyone will believe in him. And then mm-hmm. the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening there? It seems wild. You know, they see what he's doing and his power, and yet mm-hmm. it's a bad thing for mm-hmm. them. Yeah, I think that there's, there's a number of things going on here. And we, we, can't, we, we can't forget the political the political narrative that's happening here between the Romans, between, between the Jewish nation, I, I believe there's a lot of fear here. I believe that the Pharisees and, um, and the religious leaders of the day were, were sincerely afraid and that they were um, captured by their fear. If you remember, they've already gone through a destruction of the temple. They've already gone through some pretty oppressive political things. And, and we know why. We know it was because of their unbelief. We know that they were sent into exile uh, because of their rejection of the truth and the rejection of God. And that was uh, God's means of bringing them back to himself. 
Uh, and, I, and I believe that in this passage, we're seeing that same kind of fear, that they're afraid that if they don't toe the line, if they don't do things properly and do things according to the law, that something like this is going to happen. So then you have this guy, Jesus, who steps out onto the scene, and he says that he's the Messiah, and he says something that confuses them. He says that he's going to destroy the temple in three days and then rebuild it, and they think he's talking about the temple, but he's talking about his body, which John makes the comment of that they were confused. Even the disciples were confused. They didn't know what he was saying there, and so I believe that that, that what we're seeing here is that fear just taking further root, and them deciding to do something based on it. And so they, they say, well, you know, if, if Jesus continues, so in their mind, if Jesus continues to do what he says he's going to do, he's going to destroy the temple, he's going to destroy our religious system, um, the Romans are, are going to seize their opportunity to, um, to take further control of us, to, to, to maybe even put us into exile, whatever, whatever kinds of fears might be running through their heads. So like in their mind, it's better for Jesus to die than for the rest of us to die, than for the rest of us to be oppressed, than for the rest of us to face scrutiny under the Romans, uh, because they're trying their hardest to toe the line. And Christ was also a threat to the system that they had built, the system that they were comfortable with. He was a threat to, to the, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, he, was, he was a threat to the power that they had uh, over, over the people and even the fear that they instilled in the people. And so for them, Jesus just represented um, just, just, just fear, I believe. Um, and and they, they just thought that it would be best just to do away with him. And you had mentioned the irony, and the irony in this is, is that they believe that one man needs to die for the nation. And that's, that's what's ironic about this is because one man does need to die for, for others. One, one man being Jesus, Jesus did need to die for the nation. Jesus did need to die for the people. That's why God had sent him. God had sent him to be the redeemer of the people, to be the one who would be the sacrifice, uh, the, the, the offering for the people so that they can be in communion and uh, restored in relationship with, with God. So by saying that one man needs to die, like you said, there is, this, there is this underlying irony. For them, it was political reasons, but for God, it was much greater, much further than that. It was uh, for resurrection of life reasons. It's almost like irony is the word of the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, because as you mentioned, they recognized that one man was going to have to die. And John makes this narrative comment in verse 51, after quoting Caiaphas, saying it's better that one man die for the people mm-hmm. than that the whole nation perish, he comments, he did not say this on his own, mm-hmm. but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and to make them one. Mm-hmm just almost mind-blowing that these guys are thinking politics. They're in the midst of fear. They're not really seeking God or want. And yet John steps back and says, recognize God used him. And that was real prophecy that that Mm -hmm. God was the one doing that. Mm -hmm. Just, well, 
Yeah. He's in control all the yeah. way. And you and you see this throughout scripture, right? Like we see other instances of God using uh, somebody who is who is opposed to him basically, uh, who who was rejecting the truth. God would use them to bring about his plan and to bring about his purpose. We see it with Pharaoh. We uh, we see it all throughout all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament when God would use a nation or he'd use an individual. Uh, and you're and you're sitting there thinking like, wow, he really is in control. Like, <laughs> like God's going to use whoever He needs to use to accomplish His plan and accomplish His purpose of redeeming people to be united with Him uh, for eternity. So it's just such an encouraging, incredible thing to just contemplate that He loves us that much that He would use whatever means possible to save us. You know, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, I know when you're doing prep work and preparing a sermon, sometimes there's things you don't get to work in. There's just not time. Or maybe there's things that really strike you personally as you're working through a passage. Particular things with this chapter and this message? Mm-hmm. Well, I would say even like the conver- the discussion that we just had about the end of the passage, we didn't really get a chance to to talk about that on Sunday. But some of the things that, that we highlighted even on Sunday, that really stood out to me would be one, one would be Christ's response and his patience throughout this whole passage. At the beginning of the passage, he comes out and he says that, that he's going to do something. He's going to raise Lazarus. Now, he doesn't come out and say he's going to raise Lazarus right at the beginning, but he, he's, you get the sense that he's going to do something that's going to be for the glory of God, for um, his own exaltation, as the Savior, as the Messiah, but also for the good of the people. And he keeps saying this. It keeps coming up throughout the passage. It's kind of scattered throughout the passage in different ways because people keep kind of having some kind of skepticism about it. Um, Martha and Mary, they both question him, and they both say to him, uh, you know, I if you were only here, Lord, then my brother wouldn't have died. Both of them say that. But yet Jesus still has this, has this gracious and patient response with them. And that wasn't going to, their response to him wasn't going to change what he was going to do. And he's like, almost like he's excited about doing what he's going to do. Because he says to the the disciples, "Um, I'm glad for you that, that we're able to go the time that we're going and that Lazarus has already died and that I'm going to raise him up. But he's, he's, he's saying, I'm, I'm glad for you that it's now we're going because you're going to see something amazing and it's going to be good for your belief. Um, so he, he stays focused, stays gracious, and stays patient. But I've always been struck by the fact that he takes time to weep. He, he sees Mary and Martha and the mourners and he, and he just stops and he weeps for Lazarus. Now, you and I had had this brief conversation um, last week, I believe, about, about this passage. Uh, very interesting words that are, that are used here describing how Jesus was feeling. It says that, that he was deeply moved, that he was deeply moved. And that, at that point, he, that's, when, that's what drove him to be... Um, Deeply moved, sorry, it says here in the verse, deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. That's what drove him to weep. And that phrase, deeply moved and troubled, 
has the idea of angry. He was angered and he was troubled and he was angered. And the question comes, well, what's he angry at? Is he angry at the fact that they're mourning? Is he angry that, that Lazarus has died? Um, what's, what's causing this anger? I think, I think if we were to play some, um, some biblical theology here, we would be reminded of, of how Christ, when he approaches Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44, that's another significant passage where it, it mentions that Jesus wept. And if we just look at those verses, it says this, as he approached in Luke 19, as he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what would bring peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes, for the, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you and hem you on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in the midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. And I think it's interesting. Jesus weeps for the spiritual condition of Jerusalem. He looks at Jerusalem and his response is weeping because they did not recognize God when he had come to them. So I believe that that here, when it says that he was deeply moved in his spirit and he was troubled, meaning he was angry, I believe it has to, it has to do with the spiritual condition of the people, the people that he knows that aren't going to believe this sign, the, the effects of sin, um, death being one of them. Um, and, I, I, and those are all appropriate responses to sin and its consequences. And we can learn from that. Like, how do we respond to sin and its consequences? Do we take time to weep? Do we take time to mourn? Um, do we see that death is a consequence of sin? And it is good to mourn death. That, you know, today's day and age, everyone's all about like a celebration of life. And, and you kind of see this like downplaying of, of the word funeral or, or mourning or grieving. But I think it's important that as Christians, we do mourn because we are reminded of the fact that death was not supposed to be natural. It was not supposed to be the plan, uh, but it came because of sin entering into the world. But yet Jesus has come to bring resurrection life to us spiritually and uh, physically. So those would be some of the things that, that, that encourage me as I, as I look at this passage. Okay. I know, as you just said, that summary, I'm thinking of verse 49. Mm -hmm. If you believe me, you will see the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And just sticking with him, he's there. He's, he's weeping over sin. He's angry yeah. at the effects. And yet we have hope. Like this is obviously a sign. And they all point to him. And they get culminated when we see the glory of mm -hmm. God when he dies and he rises again. And if mm -hmm. we believe in him, we have that overflowing glory mm -hmm. and blessing and encouragement in our lives mm -hmm. if we're believing in him. Yeah, that's such, a, that's such a good point. Such a good point to make. Well, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you, Byron. Till next time. Sounds good.